to me, it was the right fit, you know, against the New York Giants. Like, this is, this is the New York Giants. If you don't like it, then you're welcome to leave. But that's the way that we do things around here. We play in New Jersey, man, so there's going to be some chippiness, there's going to be some griminess, but we're leaving it within the line, and I'll take a team like that. Once a Giant, always a Giant. For me, it's only a Giant. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of All In with Art Stapleton, a New York Giants podcast brought to you by the USA Today Network. I am your host, Art Stapleton, and we are back after a couple weeks off. Off from the show, anyway, because we've been grinding away at the NFL draft coverage. Everything that's going on with the Giants heading into a big week for the Joe Shane, Brian Dable ever. With everything they've got going on, two top ten picks. Nine picks overall. It's going to be a busy week in Giants land, and we are back to dig in and give you everything you need to know about Big Blue. On today's show, Mike Tannenbaum, NFL exec for more than two decades. Obviously, those of us in New York know Mr. T as the Jets general manager during the later stages of the Eric Mangini regime, and then with Rex Ryan, made two AFC championship games in 09 and 10, and wanted to pick Mike's brain. He did cross paths with Joe Shane in Miami when, after his Jets stint, Mike was down there as the executive vice president of the Dolphins. And Joe Shane had been working his way up on the personnel side. Shane left shortly thereafter. But Tannenbaum is familiar with Shane down there. I don't get the sense that the two of them uh, worked extremely closely together. Uh, and I don't get the sense that they're, they're talking on a regular basis. But they do have someone in common. And that's Bill Parcells. Tannenbaum and Parcells. Obviously, Parcells brought Tannenbaum to the Jets as his contracts guy. And Shane and Parcells are obviously linked, as Shane considers Parcells one of his mentors. And so that's where that link is. But I didn't necessarily bring Tannenbaum on the show to talk about Joe Shane. I wanted Tannenbaum's perspective as to what it's like to be a general manager one week before the draft, and specifically your first draft, because that's where Joe Shane is, and we had Joe Shane's pre-draft press conference the other day back in the facility. That was the first time that we've had media availability in the team auditorium since Pat Shermer was fired as head coach. That's how long ago. It was December 2019. Obviously, that's because of COVID restrictions. But we were back in there for Joe Shane's pre-draft press conference. I'll give you a sense of some of the takeaways that I had from Shane after the interview with Tannenbaum. I think that's probably the best way to go. But I want to give you a sense, before we get to Tannenbaum, the... uh, how I'm setting up next week for the first time on the program. I believe we are going to have a repeat guest by popular demand. 
Peter Schrager from Fox Sports, NFL Networks, Good Morning Football. Trying to work it out with Schrags. He's going to be in Vegas all week next week. So it's going to be a busy week for him. But I think we're going to be able to squeeze in an interview on Monday. And as soon as we get that with Peter, uh, we will try to produce the show and get it up live. So you can hear that, hear all of his thoughts and our conversation regarding the NFL draft, what the Giants will do. Uh, Peter always has a good sense, you know. Uh, here's one thing that I kind of got this earlier in the week when when people start popping mock drafts and rating drafts on whether or not you get a pick correct. I don't think mock drafts are about getting the pick. Sure, you want to hit the pick, but it's also about getting a sense of what teams are thinking, what teams around the league are thinking about the rest of the draft. And I think that's important when you're trying to put together a plan to figure out which prospects will be there, which ones won't. So with Schrager, I believe just as I did back when we talked the first time on the heels of the changes that the giants made, Dave Gettleman leaving Joe judge leaving when Peter essentially laid out all of the GM candidates that we had. Um, I think Peter is as plugged in to front offices around the league as anyone. So uh, that's why I'm excited to get him back. That was one of our best received shows since the inception of all in last August. So it'll be great to have Peter back on. Uh, I'd like to do some sort of mock draft next week. I'm still not sure how we're going to do that, Uh, but I will have a draft preview show and then, After the draft, Friday morning after the first round, we plan on going uh, with a reaction podcast on Friday morning. And then my guess is we'll have a podcast to wrap everything on the following Monday after the draft. Uh, We'll see how things go. If there's something warranted on Friday night, uh, we'll think about doing something on the weekend. But... uh, that'll be remain to be seen. So at the very least, I would expect another two shows before the draft and then the immediate reaction prod, uh, podcast on Friday morning. I will be at the Giants facility uh, where we traditionally have gotten the head coach and the general manager, and then we'll get the picks by phone uh, because picking in a top 10 is mo- almost a certainty that those players are in Las Vegas for the draft. So instead of going to Las Vegas for the draft, we are at the team facility and you get the personnel uh, department, essentially team brass for those picks. Now let's get to the interview with, with Mike Tannenbaum and then I'll give you my thoughts on Joe Shane and his press conference. Uh, My biggest takeaway going in to Tannenbaum doing the research is that If you go back to 2006 and his first NFL draft as a general manager, he ended up taking two offensive linemen, and the Jets took DeBrickashaw Ferguson, fourth overall, and then Nick Mangold, 29th overall, and two of the best players in franchise history for the Jets, two pro bowlers, 
guys who were just cornerstones on that offensive line. And there have been some Giants fans who have talked about, do the Giants take an offensive line, do a double dip, and go, let's say, whoever's there between Iki Aquanu, Evan Neal, and Charles Cross, and take one at five and one at seven. I'm not sure that'll happen, but I talked about that with Mike Tannenbaum. So without further ado, here's the former general manager of the Jets and front office insider for ESPN. Okay, joining me now, Mike Tannenbaum, more than two decades of experience as an NFL executive. Of course, everyone in New York knows him as the former GM of the Jets, two AFC championship appearances. He's the executive vice president of the Dolphins, now front office insider for ESPN and co-founder of the 33rd team. If you haven't checked it out, provides great content from front office insiders across the league. Mike, happy Friday morning, week of the draft, and I uh, appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So let, let's get into it. Uh, really from your perspective first, you know, your journey I wanted to go back to the first time you're a general manager preparing for the draft, and obviously Joe Shane is dealing with that with the Giants right now. Do you remember what it was like? Kind of a was it an hour to hour thing when you start getting closer to the draft? Uh, take me through the emotions and what's the plan you set forth as a first year general manager when you're going into that first draft? That's a great question. Um, it's, uh, it, I forget this. Uh, Coach Parcells is telling me, hey, when you're running a draft, you know, pretend that you're sort of like above the room and you're sort of like looking at, at the various like dynamics in the room. You got to be the person in charge above, beyond reproach. You want to have a calm sort of like stillness about you. And... He's like, you just never know what's going to happen, and you have to be prepared. And we're having this conversation, our um, draft back in those days, first round was Saturday, and this is like Thursday, late afternoon, early evening. And on Friday night, I was home, left the office at a reasonable hour, was going to have dinner with my family, and it wasn't even a crawl back then. It was like a little box in the bottom right-hand corner of ESPN, and it said, the Houston Texans reach an agreement in principle with Mario Williams to be the first pick. I'm like, oh my God, we all thought that that was going to be Reggie Bush. So I immediately call up Eric Mangini, our head coach, and say, hey, Eric, we really got to talk through Bush again because we're sitting here with the fourth pick. And we never thought that he'd be gone, you know, past one. And it really, like, it was that like it was amazing because 24 hours earlier on Thursday, you know, Coach Parcells was giving me advice, and literally within how we got to the draft, there was a major, major curveball in my first draft. Wow, that that is pretty funny because I didn't remember that. I was looking back at the draft, and obviously, uh, Giants fans refer back to that 2006 draft now because what you guys did that year with the Jets getting to Brickishaw Ferguson and Nick Mangold. We know the offensive line needs with the Giants. Uh, did you guys go into that first round saying, you know, if we can take two offensive line cornerstones, that's what we're going to do? Now, I know it's not like what Joe Shane is dealing with the, with the fifth and seventh pick overall. Mangold ended up going 29th, I believe. But 
the idea to come away with Ferguson and uh, and Mangold that year uh, kind of sent a statement, didn't it? Yeah, and you know, we, we were fortunate. I'll never forget, like, we're sitting there and we're taking Mangold. I'm thinking, like, you know, this could be, like, a you know, really good pick for us, you know, for a number of years. Uh, but it's really not that exciting. You know, like, you know, two first-round offensive linemen sort of, like, hold up. And I'm sitting there. And the phone rings, and it's Ozzie Newsom, the uh, general manager of the Ravens, someone I have a great deal of respect for. And he's like, you are one lucky SOB. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he goes, at 13, we took Haloti Nada, and 51% of our room wanted Haloti Nada, but 49% wanted Nick Mangold. He goes, it's inconceivable to us that Nick Mangold was literally, he's like, Mike, he was within a whisker of being picked number 13. He's like, how in the world does he slip to 29? It made no sense to us. He's like, you got a top 10 player in Mangle. He goes, let alone to Berkeshaw. And it was candidly, it was like that conversation that kind of kind of pumped me up. And of course, like years later, like it paid off uh, way more than we could have ever dreamed of. You know, they were foundational players on really, really good teams. And, you know, we went to the playoffs a bunch of times, a couple championship games. Um, but we were rock solid up front. And it really started with Brick and Nick. So from your perspective, when you start assessing this draft, and obviously we go, I mean, it's been months and months of mock drafts from our perspective. I think people, it's kind of the uh, paralysis by analysis at this point. We all know the players. Uh, but when it comes to the offensive line, I mean, we know the, you know, Iki Aquanu and Evan Neal are mentioned, and obviously Charles Cross has gotten a bit of buzz related to the Giants recently. Uh, having done what you did as a general manager in your first year to see the way it worked out, could you sell the idea of taking an offensive line at five and then coming back at seven and taking another offensive lineman if you were the Giants? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, you show me a good offensive line, I'll show you a playoff team. And I think Cincinnati is a really good example of an exception. But most times, the teams that are consistently good up front are the ones that are consistently vying for playoffs. Um, and that's uh, something that was true 10 years ago. I think it's true now, and I think it's going to be true 10 years later. It's just, it's hard to win up without uh, being, having quality players up front. It's hard to win on the road. It's hard to win on third down. It's hard to develop a quarterback um, if you don't have a meaningful offensive line. And again, there's exceptions to everything, and I would tell you that Cincinnati was you know, an exception last year, but if you look at what they've done so far, yeah, I think they would tell you that they were exceptions as well. Yeah, I think that but what they've done in the offseason kind of shows that they knew they kind of got away with some stuff up front that they couldn't allow to happen to, you know, to go into year two. Uh, what do you see when you look at the players? What If you started shaping up this top five, put your GM hat on a little bit, uh, and when you're analyzing, where is the pressure point of the top five in your mind? Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think we're going to be... More than the top five are, I think it's just going to be a lot of like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. You know, just because when you talk to teams, people are all over the place. And um, <laughs> it's just interesting. I, I, this one can go a lot of different ways. I, I think Hutchinson will go one, the talented pass rusher from Michigan. But after that, like, who does Detroit take? I, I hope they take Sauce Gardner. I think he's a rare corner that's a really, really good player. But. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what they do. Um, that, that, to me, like, this whole draft is, is a little bit like that. 
if you were a GM in this situation, do you, I mean, especially now, like you mentioned, when your first year, it was the Saturday. So it was a little, you know, you went to bed the night before and then it was bang right at 12 o'clock that morning. So it wasn't like it was the craziness of waiting for that first round. But now, you know, Joe Shane talked about it earlier this week. You know, he, he had gotten used to playing golf on that Thursday and now as a general manager, he's going to kind of count the seconds and you just never know what the phone calls are going to bring. Could you almost get caught up in a year like this where you focus too much on the what ifs? Because it just seems like it'll drive, if it was me, it would drive me crazy trying to figure out all the machinations and everything that's going to happen. Like you said, it, it ended up popping up on the on the crawl on the TV when you found out, okay, one domino already dropped. It's a little different nowadays. How would you handle it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, back on your preparation, I mean, I was part of arguably the craziest, most unexpected moments in, in the history of the draft, which was in 2016. Yeah. Um, had a really good left tackle on Brandon Albert, and um, the number one player on our board was Larry Thompson. And we had a million other needs that year. It was our first year in Miami. We actually had a good team. We went to the playoffs that year. Um, and there was a video that came out soon before the draft. And for whatever reason, it scared away a number of teams, not us. And somehow we got the number one pick on the board without giving up a draft choice. And we took a position we didn't need. And when I tell you we ran a hundred scenarios that year because you're sitting there in the middle of the first round, what about this, what about that? None of us had Laramie Tunsil, who was completely healthy, without giving up a single pick, uh, going uh, at 13. So you just truly never know, and I lived through that. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Uh, so from a Giants perspective, what, what do you expect to see when they get on the clock at five? Which way would you go if you were drawing it up? Maybe both sides of the ball. You know, you get you know a difference maker at left tackle, and you know you pair him with someone like Andrew Thomas. Like you're gonna feel pretty good about the fact that hey, like we we can really have meaningful bookends here, you know, for a while, which is something um, they're gonna need because you want to find out about uh, how good Daniel Jones can be. Let's help him up front. You obviously uh, crossed paths with Joe Shane a little bit in your time in Miami. I'm just curious, take me back a couple months ago when the Giants were making their front office moves and then obviously their head coach. What What's your perspective, your your take on on Shane and, and Brian Dayball right now as they try to kind of rebuild, rebuild something here again, the, the Giants that spun the carousel yet again uh, with a new regime? Yeah. Places and uh, obviously, you know, benefiting from you know the, the good work they did up in Buffalo, and uh, you know, obviously got you know a great opportunity to work with you know with great ownership. You know, I was in New York for a long time, and the Maras and the Tishes give you you know everything you need to be successful. Um, Brian Dayball, uh, I really got to know Brian really well. We worked together for a number of years in New York. Uh, really special guy. I think he's going to be a really good head coach for a long time. I think he has rare and authentic people skills, you know, in a business where people kind of come and go and say things and do things. Like, I think Brian's been a guy that's been, like, above the fray who's really, like, invested in a meaningful way in relationships, and I think his players will see that, and I think you see the players like he's developed over the years, so um, 
I think Brian, I'm a big fan of his. Um, I've seen him his whole career be a problem solver and someone that can develop players and be a natural leader. So um, I'm a big fan of Brian Dayball. What uh, when you go into you know next week? If you had to, if you were in a war room, is there one player that you've seen to this point that you would kind of stand on the table for and and say, you know what, this has to be our guy? You know, I would go back to Sauce Gardner. I just think he reminds me so much of Antonio Cromartie. Like you know, working with Rex, it was always interesting about Rex. When, you know, he always talked about, hey, we we want to play basketball in the back end. Like we want to be able to play you know, man-to-man with length. And that's what Gardner has. And when you think about all these offenses that are so powerful, that are explosive, um, he's a guy that should really be able to play man-to-man on the outside um, and, and, and hold up. And that's hard to do. Uh, and when you can do that, you know, like Rex's expression art was like, hey, we could change the map, meaning that if we could, you know, stay light on the back end because we could play man-to-man, we could send more people to make it defend so that's why we were so aggressive defensively in New York is because we had Darrell Rivas we had Antonio Cromartie we were able to um, sort of like impact the game that way I think Sauce Garner is one of those players that could really help your pass rush because he's so good uh, in coverage yeah you know and when you think with the Giants now with Wink Martindale obviously he has some some Rex uh, Ryan tendencies in him going all the way back I mean they were pretty tight uh, so I, I could certainly see, I mean, I know you were just talking sauce in general, but I could see at five if the Giants kind of do their, you know, play their games. That was the other thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go. I know you're tight on time, so I really appreciate it. If you're sitting there at five and you know you've got another pick one spot later, how much do you dig in on, on the Carolina Panthers and what's going to happen at six? And do you kind of get caught up? I mean, I know it could be cute if you have a couple players you like, but... You don't know. I mean, what would you what would you do there? Would you take a guy thinking that you know what we're good? You know, let's say two offensive linemen are sitting there that you really like. Plus, you have a guy like Sauce. Do you take Sauce in that spot and then just say we'll take even if Carolina takes a tackle, we'll take the other tackle at seven? How would you handle that? Yeah, you know, you don't want to overthink that because Carolina is in a weird position because they drafted the first round and then they don't draft until I believe the fourth round. So if I'm Carolina, like job number one is to trade back and pick up more picks. So you don't really know what's going to happen there. Um, You can't really plan for that because you don't know what another team is going to value to come up to six and what that team's needs are. So I think you just go through the preparation. um, You run your scenarios, but you just take the best player you really don't have to overthink it. And I could just tell you by you know, doing it for a couple of decades, like the years we got it right, we just took really good players, really good schools. We asked them to do exactly what they did. And more times than not, that's going to work out. And that was great advice from the late, great George Young. I know that sounds so simple, but it's amazing how we, and, and I'm certainly part of the we, the mistakes are, you know, late information comes in, you overthink things. You overlook things like, you know, I'll give you a good example, Trayvon Walker. I think Trayvon Walker's going to be a good player in the NFL. Trayvon Walker does not have production. And while I think he'll work out and be a, a good player, whoever turns in that card next Thursday, Art, they're going to hold their breath because Kirby Smart's a really good coach. 
And how come he didn't have production at Georgia? And even though he has great measurables, great workout, great character, he was not overly productive. And there's risk in Trayvon Walker. Someone's going to take him early, and if it doesn't work out, like there's a reason for it. So um, that's why I say sometimes we overthink things. Gotcha. Well, why don't you uh, tell tell my listeners what do you got going on next week? Where can they find you throughout the draft? I know obviously you're involved on on social media uh, on Twitter. They can find you, but where what do you got going on uh, the three days next week? Um, really privileged to be uh, part of uh, the ESPN national radio coverage. So, um, any place you listen to ESPN radio, we'll have coverage uh, all three days, every pick and. We'll be ready to roll and looking forward to it. Awesome. Appreciate it. From one UMass guy to another, let's get that basketball team rolling with Frank Martin, and uh, we can be the ones out there, right? I figure we're going to be the new beast of the East now that Jay Wright's no longer at Villanova. There we go. I appreciate that. Sounds great to me. All right, Mike. Have a fun draft. This time you can't get anything wrong, right? This is the good, yeah. the good seat. Exactly. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Special thanks to Mike Tannenbaum. I know he's busy. Uh, apologies for you know some of the cell phone cutouts. We try to do our best with the audio. Sometimes schedules dictate. Look, you got to take the interviews whenever you can take the interviews. So again, appreciate Mike for taking the time. Uh, as he said, you can check him out next week on ESPN's radio coverage of the NFL Draft. Uh, also, check out the 33rd team on online. They do a lot of good stuff there. Interesting takes from people who have worked in the front offices and been head coaches previously in the NFL. So, uh, as I noted, Mike Tannenbaum is a UMass guy like myself. We did not cross paths in Amherst, but uh, it's always nice to get a UMass guy aboard and uh, talk about that. And if you know me and you follow me on social media, uh, lately I've been really into what the, the UMass Minutemen have done basketball-wise. So uh, Frank Martin, a new head coach, thinking back makes me reminisce a little bit to my days at UMass when John Calipari was the head coach and went to the NCAA tournament four straight years it's always uh, always nice to dream that UMass can finally get back to there. So that'll be for another day. We'll talk about uh, college basketball at some point. Maybe when we get Victor Cruz on the show, we could reminisce about his time in Amherst, and uh, we can go down that road. Uh, but it's a big week. Joe Shane, as I mentioned, his press conference, I thought he was pretty comfortable. If you watch or, or watch the video or if you saw photos of him, uh, this wasn't a general manager who was afraid to answer questions uh, and feel like he was giving away state secrets. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. I can go back to Jerry Reese's pre-draft press conferences, and they were really a waste of time because instead of answering questions with the idea that you're not going to give anything away – Jerry Reese was very defensive. Dave Gettleman was very flip. When you talk to Dave Gettleman, it's almost like you felt like either he was making a joke about the draft or he was going to, you know, some of his answers were, were pretty condescending at times. And 
the other part was he would have no problem just stating falsehoods, really, in terms of what he believed in the draft. Uh, and I think Joe Shane, to this point, didn't really give any lies out there, didn't put anything. I thought he was very calculated in terms of how he talked about James Bradbury. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to come out and say this guy has no place on our team. We have to get rid of him and then expect the team to give you a draft pick. More likely for me, I don't believe James Bradbury will be on this team. I know a lot of fans have looked at it and said, well, why can't they do anything with the contract? The James Bradbury situation is different than Sterling Shepard or Blake Martinez. Sterling Shepard and Blake Martinez had years left on their contract. So you could restructure that contract by taking a pay cut this year, but taking it as a signing bonus and then spreading it out over the remainder of, of the contract. You could also do what they did with Shepard and Martinez and basically take the pay cut and make them free agents next year. And that's what they're going to do with those two players. So you can look at the Adoree Jackson situation. You restructured his contract, but you restructured it by giving him a signing bonus this year basically converting base salary to signing bonus, and that allows you to spread that money, let's say just out of out of the air it was $10 million. If you make that a signing bonus, you can now spread that signing bonus, that $10 million cap-wise, over the next two years, three years, by adding a void year. So there are a lot of cap gymnastics that can take place if you identify a player who's going to be part of your future. In James Bradbury's case, he has no motivation at all to accept anything less than what he's promised contractually this year. Because if the Giants release him, he gets all that money. And there's no guarantee for next year. He's going to be a free agent. So if you're Bradbury, you're going to sit tight. You may want to be here. You might not want to be here. But that's not your call. And then next year you'll be a free agent. So if you have a good year this year, you can hit the market next year and get a much better deal than maybe the Giants would be willing to offer you. Now, Joe Shane says everything's on the table. Uh, Of course he says that. (laughs) He needs to say that. He needs to have teams believe that the Giants are going to keep James Bradbury. But when you need $12 million in cap space to sign this draft class and James Bradbury would bring back roughly that, if he were not on this team and traded, not cut, traded, uh, I think that's the way to go. I think what you may end up seeing, and Joe Shane mentioned not so much action on 5-7, and seven, although he's gotten some calls, but no hard offers. That 36th pick in the second round, the fourth spot, with the way the draft is structured now, and you heard Mike Tannenbaum mention that earlier, that you had... The first round start on Saturday and being Saturday and Sunday. By moving it the way Roger Goodell did, by putting the first round in prime time on Thursday and then rounds two and three in prime time on Friday, you've created this trade window for action on Friday afternoon. Teams leave their facilities on Thursday night essentially with a whole nother start to the draft. And Joe Shane said it the other day, you know, the Giants will leave and they'll stack their board 
they'll create a list of players. Let's say if they create 10 players that they really like and they're not that far off on their board, they're sitting there at 36, they may look to trade back because they know, hey, look, it's just like the top 10 of the first round, top 10 of the second round. If you have 10 prospects and you're sitting fourth and there's not that much different on your board and you can actually get an extra pick, an extra third rounder, let's say, to move back, or maybe you get a pick next year, a second rounder next year. It's only going to help your assets. I think they may look at that. That might be the sweet spot for the Giants to try to get some assets back. In a ideal world, Joe Shane moves back from 5 or 7 and gets a first-round pick for 2023. Protect yourself for next year. Try to arm yourself with enough ammunition, if you will, to try to go get a quarterback if you need to. If Daniel Jones does not pan out and you have to part ways with him next year, that's what you do. But I think on the shows for next week, we'll get into which prospects are the best. But I think one of one of the interesting parts here is that positional value-wise, Joe Shane has essentially told you the tackles, the corners on the market, and he actually mentioned it without mentioning names. He mentioned the Denzel Ward contract that Cleveland just gave their number four overall pick from a couple years ago. The money, the positional value on the market. If you're going to go out and get a corner on the market, that's what you're paying. You have to pay what Ward is getting. So I think it's corner, offensive tackle, and maybe edge. But the edge market, I think, will change for the Giants sitting there at five. Uh, I don't know how they stack them as far as the edge goes, but I do know three of the best prospects, and I don't think it's it's an argument for the first two at least, are Ikiakuanu and Evan Neal. So if the Giants can get one of those at five, I think they'll be thrilled. I think Carolina at six is an interesting situation. Carolina's trying to figure out what the Giants will do. Will they trade out at five to let a team come up and jump Carolina for something? Is the interest in quarterbacks real? The Giants with seven basically sandwiched around Carolina – Do they risk getting too cute if they look at their board and say, well, we like two tackles. Let's say Aquano goes to the Texans at three, and then Neal and Charles Cross are sitting there at five, and the Giants say they have them closer on their board than some other teams. Do they take a Sauce Gardner at five with the fear that someone might trade up into Carolina's sixth spot? And risk the idea that if they like Neil better than Cross or Cross better than Neil, that regardless, one of those will be at seven. And I think that's kind of one of those games that you're going to get the chance to to get a read on who Joe Shane is as a drafter. And I think that's kind of what we're looking for going forward. But it was great to be back in the show. Again, thanks to Mike Tannenbaum. 
I'll have more on Joe Shane and the Giants draft next week in our lead up to the draft. But I appreciate you tuning in. As always, we're all in. So we appreciate that you're all in as well. We'll see you next week. Draft week. Big week for the Giants.